after a short hiatus. How like we haven't had a new episode since what like early May? Yeah, it's been several weeks. Um, several weeks, yeah. We've been quite heads down on other stuff. Dan, I know that you started up a new job. Yeah. Um, we haven't been like actively recruiting people here to get on the show, but <laughs> uh, today we have Jin Yang, who is the VP of Design at Capital One. And Jin is gonna, again, he's here for just having a great conversation about his career. Um, gonna touch on a little bit of things around silent leadership, design thinking in the workplace, and then hopefully we'll get to talk about some food. Because uh, awesome. Jin is also a huge foodie, so. Welcome, Jin. <laughs> Glad to be here. Let's talk about food first. No, just kidding. <laughs> I, I'm all for it. I mean, I'm in Vancouver, so we have good food. So there's plenty of stuff to talk about. Oh, I love Vancouver. It's my most favorite city in the world. And I yeah, really. Yes. Now, did you find a hot pot place there in Vancouver? Yeah, in Richmond. Um, where it's pretty much Chinatown there. I think Dan should know that. Yeah. It has some really amazing Chinese restaurants. Yeah, no, it's really good. So I actually, I met Jen um, in my time working at Stack Overflow. Uh, Jen was my boss. Uh, he recruited me to the company as a designer. Um, and Jen, you were the first designer at Stack Overflow. So you saw kind of the evolution of that product from basically its inception, right? Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, to start talking about that, I'll rewind about 10 years before Stack Overflow. <laughs> so in the early 2000s, <clears throat> actually rewind six years, uh, about 2001 to 2004, I worked for GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, in the Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. That's where I met Jeff Atwood and Jared Dixon. <laughs> they were on my team. Um, so I was an oh, internal wow. web app designer slash developer. Jared just got out of college and <clears throat> Jeff was, I forgot what Jeff's title was, some kind of network developer. And Jeff and I quickly be became friends because we were gaming nerds and he used to come to my house, uh, have LAN party with me. <laughs> Do you remember LAN party back in the day? Oh my um, gosh. I, yes. I still remember he's custom this little portable gaming PC with a door handle mounted on top so he could just lift the box. Um, so we became good friends and after, later, I left that job, and so that he, I, I believe, he moved to West Coast. So we lost contact for a good while, and around 2007 to 2010 time, I was working at the FCC, the federal government in DC area. And during that time, my coworkers kept on linking me this blog called Coding Her, you know, and it was really good content. I didn't even pay attention to what the author was. I came on reading after months, I was like, wait a minute, this is Jeff's blog. <laughs> so um, I I think I sent him an email just saying hi, and we um, caught up a little bit after that and stayed in touch. Um, I think one day around, is it 2008 or nine, he was telling me um, he's thinking about starting this new project, side project, because at the time he had quit his full-time job because he's, blog became so successful. I think he had thousands, hundreds of thousands of um, followers. Remember like back then when blog was popular? Like, was say, like that was a different time, like a different era kind of for the web too, right, Jen? Like, yeah, before social media, it was like RSS feed and bloggers had the feed burner reader count on their um, page. Um, so <clears throat> he was telling me that he was going to start a QA site. He explained 
why he was going to do it. And it just sounds, it sounded really exciting. And he, I believe he builds Daggerflow Alpha. Um, like he blogged about <clears throat> weekly, multiple times, a w multiple times a week to the community about what the team was working on that week and what it was shipped and getting feedback. Um, in fact, years later, when he started this course, his current company, he did the same thing. He's always really transparent with the community. <clears throat> anyway, long story short, um, I helped him with some designs, CSS minor stuff, but I wasn't really truly involved. And at the time, I was not having a great time at my daytime job, <laughs> even though I really love people I work with. But this was the federal government, probably one of the worst places for a designer you can imagine <laughs> uh, you can work there for years and not shipping anything out just because it's heavily regulated there was bureaucracy uh, a lot of office politics and i remember the day uh i read i think somewhere around TechCrunch is that stacker flow raised six million dollars in funding literally that morning i sent jeff an email it just contained one line it I think it was something like, hire me, I'll bust my ass for you. <laughs> and, and that was it. And um, <clears throat> in the story after that was kind of interesting. And Jeff said, well, I, I would love to have you work here, but you have to talk to our CEO, Joe Spolsky, because Jeff is just one of the two co-founders. Uh, and I knew who Joe was too, because I was a big fan of his blogs too. He wrote a lot of really good articles on hiring good people and let them do their thing. Um, and gave employees really good benefits, like private offices and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I talked to him. I remember we had a Skype interview because back then, before all the stuff we have now, there was Skype, right? And it was really intimidating meeting him the first time. But I think one thing I learned about Gerald from that meeting is even though he was super internet famous, he just put me, put me at ease after 10 seconds. I feel like that was a skill. I learned from him later on. It really helped me interviewing candidates many years later. Um, what was it about Joel's kind of personality that gave you that? that he was just really—he was just really funny and relaxed. It didn't make me feel like this was like interview. It just like a chit chat, you know. And yeah. uh, he cracked jokes, and yeah, I mean, just he's a whole charisma personality that really affected me. Because I was getting ready to answer a lot of hard drilling <laughs> questions, but he he didn't ask any of that. He just said, "Well, I uh, appreciate sure your help, but we don't really need a full time designer right now. Uh, yeah. Maybe you can do kind of <clears throat> some kind of contract work with us." Um, and I was really disappointed. I was like, "Oh man, this what my ticket out of the government," and and I believe later on I emailed Jeff. I was like, "Well, uh, Joe like my work, but." And it doesn't sound like you guys really need a full-time designer right now. I mean, to be honest, I don't think Joe was lying because at the time they were just Stack Overflow, maybe server fault and uh, super user were getting <coughs> developed. They but they didn't have that wide net of community sites and like all of the user feedback was just going straight to Joel and right. Jeff. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. There was no marketing, no PR. Um, and that was kind of bumped out. And I told Jeff that. And and I remember Jeff said <clears throat> in this really cryptic way, he said, well, Joe likes people who want the job. <laughs> I was like, I was like, what do you mean? I want the job. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, he said, and Jeff said, well, you, you have a cushy government consulting job. I mean, you just want to try something new. And I guess he, he meant that you haven't shown that you really, really want this job. And I was like, well, how much more can I show? <laughs> I really want this job. He's, I think Jeff was like, you should quit your job. 
I was like, what? You know, because I was living in DC at the time, the cost of living was really expensive. I, I had three young kids, my wife did not work. And, <clears throat> you know, we also need a health insurance. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, to me, it, there wasn't even an option. I was like, why wouldn't anybody in their right mind, you know, just ditch a well-paid government consultant job and for something like this, throw it out the window, like the security yeah. out the window for yeah. For, you know, it's like this goes like contrary to the typical advice when people tell you like when you look for a new job, make sure that you line up your next journey before you quit your previous one. Yeah, this is like essentially just no, just cut the ties with everything and then hope that you get hired. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> to be fair, it wasn't like a complete blind decision because I trusted Jeff. I, in the back of my mind, I knew he wouldn't do me wrong, right? If he wants me to do this, and I should trust him. And I talked to my wife, and she was super supportive too. She knew I wasn't very happy <laughs> working at the government. Um, so I did. I quit my job, and I sent Jeff and Joe an email. And I remember I told Joe, really in the email, I said, hey, I quit my my government job, I would love to do more stuff for you. And he even sent me an email, say, hey, congratulations, I think you made the right call. I was like, okay. Uh, anyway, but I wasn't hired right away. I work as a contractor for Stack Overflow for four months. Now, um, didn't you do something, I vaguely remember you telling me a story about, you actually built a custom website for that oh, job, yeah. right? <clears throat> yes, I still have it, I'll link it to you later. Um, but that was after I already worked for a few months at with first Overflow as a contra contractor. And I remember every day my wife would ask me, have they offer you full-time position yet? Because I was paying Cobra insurance, if you know what that is. And it was really expensive, it was not good. Um, and I said no. And then I decided, okay, maybe instead of waiting for them to make me full-time offer, I should just you know do something on my own. So I built this one pager, super customized, just towards, Joel, it was even addressed to Joel. I said, hey, Joel. And I list him, I list him all of my credentials, my my past experience. So it's kind of like a one-pager portfolio slash job application. Um, and, and and I'm pretty sure Joel read it because I tracked, I saw a lot of traffic came from probably New York office, probably the, the Fall Creek office. And I think they were impressed with it. And but anyway, long story short, I. June 2010, I got my official offer. In fact, just three days from now, 10 years ago, in fact, before this call, I checked my email. That was when my official letter came. And I was really happy. Oh, wow. um, <clears throat> happy 10 year anniversary of your staff. Yeah, because I think my drive back then was, and I also took a 30% pay cut as well. Um, but to me, this opportunity is far greater than money at the time because I knew I really wanted to work with Jeff, Jared, um, and Jeff Dalgas and other people in the company. I would just, when I worked with them, I was just so happy. Uh, so to me, it was worth it. And plus we were building something really great too. I, it was a product I believed in because at the time, just there weren't a lot of good websites for programmer QA. There was experts exchange everybody hated, right? They got a lot of content and put on a paywall and they did these masking to do the cheap, Google SEO oh, trick. Yeah. I avoided that site at all costs. I remember when you would search for a programming issue and you'd be like, oh, I get this error in my C sharp compiler. And the first result would be experts exchange. And I just remember just like, oh, how do I block all the results coming from this site across yeah. all search engines that I ever use? 
I, I also, Jen, I love that you brought up to the fact that like you identified that there were people working on a cool project, an exciting project that you wanted to be a part of. And not only that, the team members, right? The party, the, if we, if we were to make up an RPG party, it's like you had the people there that you wanted to really do good work with. And I think Jen, you, you've also experienced this. Like when you get into a room with people, it creates energy. Yeah, right? absolutely. I still value that today to me. Uh, who I work with is probably number one factor, if not in the top two. What's number two? I would say the type of product or services that it has to be something I believe in myself. Mm -hmm. And number three is money. I have no shame of saying that because I, I do believe we need to get paid. <laughs> That's what I was waiting for. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so an interesting contrast because there is a fair amount of kind of career advice when people tell us like, oh, you know, for every next job, make sure that you aim higher than your previous one, right? But it's interesting because you did take the risk and say that the opportunity itself costs, well, the opportunity itself gives you more than what you would have gotten if you, you know, just went for a higher paying job. Yes, in fact, I totally get what you're saying. In fact, why I first started my first job, um, my first job, I mean, my real first job that I got paid was Taco Bell from high school. <laughs> I was making 5.30 at like an hour. And the rule I made for myself is like every time I switch up, I had to go higher, right? I can't go right. backward. But taking on a stagger flow job was the first time I ever broke that own, my own rule. Because up to that point, every time I switched up, I got paid higher. And But to me, it was worth it. So at that, that point, I was, a little bit more mature in my life, so it wasn't just about cash now. It's about the opportunities in the future and building something more fulfilling. And mm -hmm. so you got in there. I mean, you got into Stack Overflow, and they had a community propped up, and you had been doing contracting work. And the meta community on Stack Overflow was a huge source of feedback in those early days, right? It really mm -hmm. drove feature development. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like the design direction? I mean, because you guys were working like yeah. crazy, right? Like trying to get features out and trying to keep up with everything. Yeah. So, in fact, I think one of my test project, you know how we I talk, you know, about when I hire designers later, I give them a test project. I myself did a test project that was Area Fifty One. You know, can you give everybody a little bit of context yeah. on that? What Area Fifty One is? Hold on. I was, it's, it's Area 51, not Area 52, right? It's, it's, it's 51, yeah. I, re, I remember, wasn't the experimental features mm -hmm. for like Stack Overflow and? That's correct, I, yeah. Yeah, I get it confused because one of the World of Warcraft servers called Area 52, and I was like, <laughs> somehow, I, it's like, it's a 51 or 52, so Area 51. So <clears throat> what the back, the story was Stack Overflow became so successful and the company realized, hey, this is a good engine we can use for other topics, right? So um, that's how the Stack Change Network started. But the 1.0 version was simply just renting the engine out to anybody. And that wasn't very successful because people did not realize what made Stack Overflow successful was the community, not the software itself. So there were a lot of paying customers, but there Size were just this size, or did <clears throat> it was a full chunk. Um, and then the company decided to reboot the Stack Exchange network. Um, instead of just having people paying for it, it will be completely free. But the way people launch a website will be through this 
launching pad side, what we call Area 51. Uh, for example, if you <clears throat> you want to start a Q&A community on, I don't know, moon rocks <laughs> and whatever you want, and you, you propose it there, and you get your friends who are also interested in talking about moon rocks, they are, they, they're like the backers. So they has this launch process. So if you get enough backers, you, you see the website with some <clears throat> Uh, some default Q&A questions and answers. So once we do launch the site, it's not like a completely empty site. That was the process. And my task was to design Area 51. I don't believe the design has changed that much in the past 10 years. And I remember the direction I was given was these two illustrations with these aliens, the UFOs. And I was told Joel really likes the artist's style. And that's the only asset I had to work with. And, and I, I realized, you know, in fact, I blog about that, that too, I can link you later. My thinking was Sagarflow at the time, the design was so Spartan. It wasn't almost didn't look like it was designed, which is okay for the programmer community. They actually prefer that. But if, you know, if this network expands later, it's not just going to be programmers, it could be mainstream people, it could be our moms or uncles or yeah, like whoever, any, neighbors. Any so, interest area. Yeah, so I wanted to make it a little bit more friendly, more playful, and these illustrations actually um, <clears throat> fit that look and feel perfectly. So I just designed layout, um, a couple of designs really quickly overnight. I sent it over, and Jeff said, "Oh, the team really liked it." <laughs> so that was kind of my um, my test project, I guess. So your test project shipped. Yes. Yeah. In fact, that's that's how I decided to give test projects to future designer hires later. Because to me, it's really good because I don't like to give a fake design test, it's like a made up test. I, I prefer to be a watered down version of like a real project. So if the candidate does get hired later, they already have, they already, they have the work, they can just ship it out. That's like such a quick win, you know, for them, it's like a big you, morale you boost. Kind of, you kind of vetted their, their design chops in that problem space and they can take it even further once they get hired. Oh, 100% yeah. that. Just being able to exactly look at a problem that a company has instead of, you know, how many ping pong balls can fit in a Boeing 747? Like, I, like, yeah, that can give you some idea of how they can estimate volume, but it doesn't really tell you much about their problem solving skills when it comes to your product. Yeah, and I, one I know of the we're, yeah. parts of being involved with that at Stack. So I was on the team when we were doing that actively trying to get new people on. And it was great to see like the diversity of thought you would see a lot of the same trends. And so you could very quickly identify whether this was like a novel thought on, an, on a, like a permutation on an idea or not. So it kind of helped also to like verify like, hey, is this person like thinking in a diverse or a new way that we didn't even see, you know? And I think that's a really powerful part of it too. Yep, yep. Uh, sorry, that was a, like a long answer to your question. I don't think I even answered it, Courtney. Yeah, so when one stack change 2.0 took off, we had like 50 some communities. I think at today there are 170 some new communities out there. It was really overwhelming. And then you had to keep in mind at the time, the company's uh, focus was a lot, lot differently from what Stackerflow is doing today. Because at the time, our product was this network QA question. Like we didn't really have a strong job site or stack role teams or enterprise version at a time. I, I believe our goal was simply have the stacker flow, flow likes websites on different topics. You know, uh, of course, eventually that didn't take off because we realized you know we don't have the 
Jeff Atwood or Joe Spolsky of cooking or uh, video games, right? I mean, if we got, I don't know, Anthony Bourdain at the time to endorse the cooking <laughs> side, maybe, but. Um, so you're saying that the, the community was really anchored around these um, personalities almost, you know, Atwood and, and Spolsky, and then you started getting this programmer following, and that was the success of Stack Overflow part I, of it. I believe so. And also, it's it, essentially the initial users were, I, I believe that's even true today, the core user audience for those sites, even though they're not techie sites, but they're still programmers. That's why later on we decided, okay, these photography sites, um, video game sites, they're kind of like a hobby size for programmers. Our central audience was still programmers. And that's when the community support lessened. But in the first three years, definitely we were um, focusing on design the branding for these communities. And that's where I spent a lot of time designing. You know, it was really fun, but also scary at the same time, because the first couple of sites, I think was cooking or video games. If you think a designer's worst nightmare is designed by community or community. <laughs> and it was literally that, the pitch of design, hearing like all the meta users <laughs> critiquing my design or the moderators. And it was really nerve wracking, but eventually, what I found that made things a lot easier <clears throat> was I had to write my design pitch really carefully and strategically. Like for example, like every design decision I made, I showed them my research, my way of thinking. So I would prevent these uh, personal preference interjections. So if I pick a red color and I explain why I did this, somebody can just go in and say, no, I don't like red, red sucks, I like yellow. And they will get downvoted by the community too. So it was really important for me to have the users understand my thinking 100%. Um, yep, and there were a lot of other little tricks too. I think I taught the other designers later. I said, hey, when you do a mock-up, use the moderator's avatar. You know, that will make him feel happy and he won't be as critical. <laughs> you know, little tricks like that. <laughs> oh, this is fantastic. I, I wish I had the life hack back in the day when uh, when I worked at Microsoft and I worked at Outlook and we had to do some you know design reviews, including the photo of like the GM or something like that. <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah, I mean the thing is, I think people like to see their faces and look see their names, right? They they immediately feel like oh I'm included in this. They and get ownership. I they know that mm -hmm. like there was some thought, but like they actually t chose me. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Eventually. <clears throat> Um, I think my advantage over the designers are hard leader um, because I did spend a lot of time building that relationship with the community. So I did gain sort of reputation. So whenever I made my first meta post on a beta site that's about a graduate and people just shared because I was kind of like the bearer of good news when their uh, website becomes a real website because that's the whole process. Jim posts like an a email, give them, I mean, post a meta post, give them a heads up, say, hey, I'm working on your design. And and they were looking forward to it. So they were, it was actually a really, really awesome experience. I feel like the advantage that designers <clears throat> were, they were brought on later, it's like they didn't have, it's almost, I know it's not, it was not fair to them because they had to prove themselves like I did because the community didn't know who they were. They were like, oh, why is this guy designing my our website, not Jin, right? I had to introduce them to it. And um, I, I still don't know how they really thought about that because I feel like sometimes the communities definitely can be really harsh. Um, 
and that I just tell everybody, but they took grow ethics scan your designer. Yeah, you told us grow ethics scan is going to be like a critique you've never experienced in your life and boil the frog. So, so knowing yeah. that, and having times. that, yeah, like having that reputation, have people ever reached out to you knowing that you are the bearer of good news of kind of saying like, hey, like, can you help my community get started? Or like, can you have like short circuit essentially the process? Have people ever reached out to you about that? Yeah, the people did ping me in chat room. To, uh, but we mostly had community managers dealt with that because it's not like we arbitrarily decided which site to graduate. You know, we we just went with metrics, like what is the site activity, uh, how many new questions and answers posted. So our community manager team did a really good job uh, with that. So, so shifting awesome. gears, I wanted to make sure we touch on like your um, kind of thoughts on leadership because you've had to build a design team at Stack Overflow. Uh, you built a team at TopTal, a high-performing team there, and then now you're at Capital One. So I think you have a kind of a unique take on um, leadership style and like what you are looking for in people to work with, right? Now I'm not just talking about designers, but I'm talking about anybody that you're going to work with, right? Yeah, gosh, I have a lot of opinions and thoughts. Well, first of all, I just I don't want to come off as telling you what to do because I've discovered there are so many different leader styles that, that all will work really well. And what I'm about to say is like after years, I found out what works best for me. Um, I do believe in servant leadership and uh, that's something we, Joe Spassky preached at the Stack Overflow. I believe he personally did a really good job at that too. Um, and I was looking back in early on in my career, especially in my early 20s, uh, working in like late 20s, I used to think leadership and management are the same thing. So leadership skills is management skill because often you just have a boss, right? The boss is the leader, also the manager. A lot of times they literally have manager in their job title. And then later on I realized those two are completely two sets of skills. Often they do overlap, they do fall on the same person. Um, and to me, leadership is is somebody who inspires you, who somebody who can make you better than like like what you are, and they really believe in you. And because of them, you, you know leveled up. For example, Jeff Atwood was a really good leader for me in that regard. He wasn't like a people's manager, but he inspired me. He challenged me. Uh, he made me believe me all the product features he wanted to do, and he was really good at convincing people doing that. Um, and and also, I, I definitely believe in. I don't know. I don't necessarily know if silent leadership is the same as servant leadership because I feel like it depends on your temperament and personality, right? If you're really extroverted, you may not be as silent as somebody like me. I consider consider myself more introverted. Uh, but ultimately, it's all about supporting the team. So as a leader, my job is to set a vision for the team, establish a team culture, and and then just let the team take it from there, make sure that what they're supported. And other part of my responsibility is to keep on bringing even better designers for the team, <laughs> make sure this team collectively level up as well. For example, at Stack Overflow, my advantage was, you know, I was the first designer. I knew exactly what the company needed at the time, what our culture was, what our mission statement was. I was able to hire people more aligned towards that goal. And when Benchmark 
uh, I did actually Joel told us that he said every time you hire somebody, that person should be even better than your existing team. So that way over time your team will get better and better, right? And and I felt like I did that. Um, for example, you know, Courtney, we we still talk about this. Like every, every designer I hired on team, they were so specialized in certain area. I felt like no the, the existing team did not have that. So then they can teach the rest of the team and level up. Um, I feel yeah, like I think, my, I think that, yeah. that actually shines back to one of our like nerdy interests here, which is like you were a World of Warcraft guild leader. Like you understood what you were going into a raid and you yeah. had to build a party that's well balanced, right? Or tailored to the challenge. Yeah. And I think that your team building almost reflected like we need to have a group of skills that collectively can meet the challenge and not necessarily all of them are unicorns, right? Yeah, I remember when I was at Top Talk not that long ago, I gave one of the co-founders a presentation. It was literally about World Warcraft and leadership skills. <laughs> and I think he liked it because if you think about it, uh, and this was vanilla World Warcraft too, a raid took 40 men instead of 20 men. So if you think about it, you have to get 40, in fact, more than 40 stran uh, strangers, probably 50, because you need to back up raiders in case somebody can't show up, right? So in raiding guild, there were typically at least 50 people at a time. Um, some big guilds had hundreds of people. So anyway, you have 40 completely different strangers. You have to get them to show up sometimes four or five times a night uh, for hours at the time, accomplish this really hard mission. You may fail over and over again. You have to make sure you keep everybody's morale high, really learn from your, your mistakes. And once you've done that boss, you get these pixel lose. How do you distribute those fairly? <laughs> Because if you don't, there will be drama. And that happened a lot, right? And so a lot of those skills do mirror to real workspace um, management skills. And it's and all remote. It's all it's, it's completely, it's completely chat, right? Exactly. It's completely remote. Because back then, we just voice chats, like a TeamSpeak or a Montrello. Like, we don't even have Discord today or Zoom. Uh, and then you have to recruit new even better players and non-performing players because they are dragging the whole rate down. You have to make them not yeah, raid, or you have to kick them out of the guild. And that's that's the part of the recruitment part is, you know, it's just like uh, real jobs. You have to do that. So that kind of prepared me for it too, um, because I, my personal opinion is that anytime you have an organization of any sort with people, whether it's World Warcraft Guild or workplace to me it's it's a high school <laughs> yeah you, you have all sorts of personality just like high school you have your clicky popular people you have loners you know it's like you have to deal with that how do you it seems like you have a very big emphasis on growing fantastic talent on hiring fantastic talent um in your position how do you balance that out with uh contributing to the kind of design ethos of your company, right? Because if you're focused too much on the people side, that means you eat away from time that you could be focusing on the design and building, say, the design system for what you're working on. What's your kind of philosophy just balancing that out? That's a really good question. I think every company is different. So in a small startup, um, I probably would spend more time building the initial team and then later on focus on design directions. I mean, looking back, um, I don't want this conversation just about 
my successes, I can tell you a lot about my failures. In fact, I love learning other companies or people's failures, <laughs> and I think people can learn better. Um, I felt like when I was building the team, a few mistakes I was making, as the team grew bigger, I was still working as an IC, you know, eventually to half time, quarter time. At some point, I realized I just can't do IC work and management work anymore. Um, <clears throat> I just need to focus on one. And to be honest, I really thought just continue to be a designer, regular designer on the team, maybe have somebody else who's more experienced design leader come in, take over the team. But I felt like I wasn't comfortable with that now because I was possessive, <laughs> just because I there's no guarantee. I feel like there's a higher chance for me to become that leader because I, I definitely was not that leader at the time. I was just somebody who was just pretty decent designer, I think, and hired more designers. That that was my only contribution at the point. Um, and to me, that was a good time for me to grow my leadership style. Um, so I decided to go full-time designing. But even then, I felt like I did not give the team clear directions. My focus was making sure they're happy. That was my number one goal, to make sure this is really happy, fulfilling, supported team, because um, the company has such a strong people culture at the time. Uh, but I feel like design direction-wise, I could have been a lot more involved. Um, <clears throat> so for my next job, TopTal, I was the VP of design there, and the situation was a lot different, because I didn't get to build a design team from scratch. In fact, I inherited an existing design team who are also really talented, but there were a lot of other issues like morale, burnout issues, uh, or trust issues with other teams like PM team, engineering team. So I had to take care of that. Again, <clears throat> I had to spend a lot of time on the people aspect, but once I know the team morale, creativity, everything boosted, I've I focused on these design vision. Like I, I really advocate for unifying the design because <clears throat> I think in a lot of companies, the challenge is design fragmentation. For example, if you if you think about the user journey um, from all the way from first time they heard about your company to they actually sign up, pay you, so the journey could be from like an app banner, like, like a cold email, um, or social media posting to they to them visiting your landing page with your marketing information to try it out, get an email confirmation, and try your free version to eventually liking your product and signing up, and then after that, regular customer success type of relationship building. That whole thing to me is one design experience. And at the time, at TopTal was really fragmented. I would imagine that's a common problem in a lot of other companies too. So my design vision was to unify that. And in order to do that, I had all my design teams just really act like a one team because I led um, brand marketing design team, growth design team, and product design team. I told them, you're not designing separate designs. <laughs> Doesn't matter what your job title says. You're designing one design experience. You're just working yeah. on different stages of that. So we built a really robust design system, um, not only visually, um, but also branding message, copywriting. As a company, what is our personality? How do we write that? So we had we work with the brand team a lot with their um, content strategies. So it was really. Cool to see. I was really able. Uh, I was really proud of that team. I, I still talk to the team. Um, but today, at Top um, <clears throat> Capital One, it is such a much much bigger organization. Again, I'm only a month into the new job. I, I don't learn. I don't know everything yet. The team is just so much bigger, and my responsibilities are bigger too. I may not um, have weekly design review with the actual team because. Under me, there are design directors and design managers who do that. So what I'm telling the 
design leaders on my team is just dream bigger. Don't think of the product we're building today just for what it is today. Think about five years down the road. What can yeah, be? It could be yeah, one. Yeah. It could be one many um, products out there instead of just working on one product. Maybe sure. we're building a suite. We're building an ecosystem. We're building a operating system. So, so it sounds like you're trying to almost now that you're at that VP level, trying to multiply your focus on vision. Set yes. the vision, right? Set the vision and, and now multiply it like to all of those managers. I think yes, exactly. I think at the executive level it is about vision setting and also make sure you provide a really good environment for a team. Um I spent half of my team actually meeting not the design team members but stakeholders, for example, VP of product engineering, um a lot of PMs, just make sure we have a good process that's consistent. I think this is a fantastic point because I think that's one of the reasons why I love working with Courtney on like design stuff is because there's always this you know idea of thinking bigger. I know both you and Courtney have this vision of saying we're not just changing the style of a button. We're not just changing the style of the landing page. We are creating that cohesive end-to-end -end experience where, like you said, customers come in and they have a journey to the site. Nobody yeah. looks at, oh, this button is blue. This is exactly what I'm what I was looking for. You you go through a specific set of steps. This is fantastic to hear that um, you're looking through that. So when when it comes to building this cohesive experience, how do you manage um, stakeholders? Because I'm guessing you know, especially at a bigger uh, company, a bigger team, you'll have a lot of people that have their own. Um, areas of ownership, if you will, right? Like somebody's responsible for the marketing page, somebody's responsible for the sign-up page. How do you manage those relationships? Well, I have regularly scheduled one-on-ones with, with other key uh, stakeholder leaders every week. And I think the trick is that make them not to think uh, they're just working on a slice of pie. We are all working on the whole pie together. Um, because I would tell them, you know, from user's perspective, they don't care which team out work on what. They just want to experience, like they don't know what your, our internal organization chart is, which teams are responsible for the marketing landing page, which teams are responsible for the product UI. To them, just want to experience. And I had to explain that to them. For example, um, some of the public pages we are doing, from marketers' perspective, they just care, or growth marketers' perspective, they may just, their goal is just to increase the traffic, get conversion. Which is that's their Increase job. The Increase yeah, the <clears throat> exactly. I mean that. I mean that's their job. I, I totally respect that. But I, I want them to see this is not just about you filling a quota. This could potentially change the perception of how people see our company. You know, are we a service-based company? Are we a tech company? Are we innovative company? Like that. How we design that page matters. You know, what and we still like. If I was to look at Capital One as a tech company, how does that change my perception of them? I no longer am thinking of them as a bank, but I, they're trusted yeah. and secure yeah. because mm -hmm. of that, right? Like I think that they have tech prowess. Well, therefore, an advantage, right? Like, yeah, I, I think the fact that you say that maybe a lot of people will do when you hear Capital One. <laughs> probably you, you first think of a bank, but Capital One has been a tech company for a really long time now, uh, just in the banking space, right? And to me, what I've realized, what I've learned from TopTal, even to me as a skill up from Stack Overflows was that I realized, you know how we, when we talk about product development process, we always say oh, the holy trinity, PMs, designers, engineers. I would add a fourth one, actually even a fifth one. Research, research is a very big part of that. Sometimes you know, research 
falls under product or design. But one thing is marketing. It is so important. It's like it's no longer good enough that you know the the PM design and engineer build this product. If people don't know about your product, you may you may as well not exist, right? Because um, because when you launch the thing, to me, that's when the challenge starts. How do you promote it? Um, yeah. In fact, in yeah, Capital One, the, the internet is even bigger than it was you know, ten years ago. I mean, it's it's so it's changed so much. Yeah. Right? So, so, so one company I actually really respect. In fact, I've used several times internally during conversations is actually Microsoft, and I, I tell the team it's like Microsoft. All the all companies spend. I don't know how much you guys spend, but I would imagine at least tens of millions on uh, developer relationship and evangelism, right? And I was like, why does Microsoft even need to know that, right? They're the OG developer company, but even Microsoft knows how mar important marketing is, right? And they, they probably spend hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know. I think I think that what we just recently saw with Basecamp's launching of Hey is like a great. It's like a masterclass and like basically your brand value and how when you need to leverage it you want to be in good with your audience right because they can do a lot of work for you that yeah. you don't have to that it just eases your burden so much to exactly have marketing is such an important thing that's why i feel like marketing should be brought in early on as well when we are about to build a product so marketers learn okay what is our product about who are we targeting what's our brand image so they they the work the old yeah. school, like you got to be able to write the p the pitch, write the press release. It, it yeah. gets a lot of bad right. rap, right? Because when people assume marketing, your first hunch is like, oh, these are just the people that like I can build my product, I can design it, hand it off to marketing to sell it. Like they'll they'll figure it out. They send emails, they make all these pages, but in reality, they play a much bigger role. Where with Jen and Courtney, what you're alluding to, this is kind of building out that name and saying that you know the brand of product X stands for you know, security, it stands for trust. It stands for certain things that customers appreciate. Yeah, it to me, it's it's not fluff. I mean, assuming the marketers are good, right? They know um, <laughs> other, I mean, obviously bad marketing as well, or they just make me cringe, right? But I feel like good marketing really will help to get your product out there. Because um, some of the companies I really respect, I feel like they do amazing marketing. It's like, Nike, if you think about Nike, just make shoes. But when we think of Nike, we don't think there's a pair of sneakers. We, we think of athleticism, right? Sweating athletes that drive and make you to have that positive feeling. So it's almost like a life brand. Because I feel like any brand that becomes like a life brand, that's like the pinnacle that reached that. They become part of your life. You don't see them just as a company trying to get your money. And you want to be part of that too. Yeah, like you know, like a company like Patagonia, it's like they make jackets and stuff. It's but that's like a lifestyle brand, you know. It's an apparel brand, but it's a lifestyle brand. Right, but they also build that image of trust, right? Like when you think of Patagonia, you think of something that you know you can trust the company. You know, the, their policies are just fantastic, right? But it's all part of that marketing story where it's like, you know, so many companies will nickel and dime you on things like, you know, product exchanges, or you have a broken product, they say, yep, not wash our hands, not our problem. Versus they, they can say, hey, like, for the lifetime of your jacket, you can send it over to us, we'll fix it for free. Yeah. That's amazing. I love, I love looking too at like brands, you know, like Twitch is a great example of a, a place that took like basically a tool, they're like a website that's like providing just a service. But they're like a brand now for gaming, like you think of Twitch, you think of gaming, right? Like, 
yeah. it's so closely associated. To me, it's so interesting marketing these days are, it can be done in so many ways. So like I mentioned Microsoft, that's to me, that's still pretty traditional way of marketing, right? Hold conferences, have a big evangelism department. But if you think about other tech companies, Tesla, SpaceX, that's literally one person marketing stuff. Elon Musk shit posting on Twitter. That's like a form of marketing, right? And, and <laughs> people, to, yeah, people are like looking to him to market their the stuff. I mean, he but, is the face of Tesla. When people think of Tesla, they think of Elon Musk or same with SpaceX. And then the example you mentioned, the recent Hey drama with the Apple <clears throat> App Store, that's a form of marketing too. I think Paul Graham even said, oh, <laughs> Uh, DHH and Jennifer, uh, they they know uh, BFS marketing type of thing. They always try to stir up something on Twitter, which happens it's, to it's coincide rich. with some kind of launch of their product. And you know, think about how many people were talking about this thing in the past two weeks. To me, maybe it was not intentional, but regardless, to me, that's one way of marketing these days. Yeah, like the rich dramas provide. A Inadvertently, they provide a framework for like marketing. But you're right, because and again, they take a stand over something that they care about, right? And the, what their users care about, because the whole premise of, hey, was, you know, privacy and just kind of having that focus on email that a lot of companies don't have. And that they, they stand for it and they, they propel their narrative very, very fast. Yep. yep. So... Jen, you've talked a lot about successes and, you know, you touched briefly on some failures, but have you ever had a team like fail to reach a goal? And if so, what do you, what did you learn from that experience? Like, how did you tell your team, you know, like, how do you deal with dis great disappointment when you're in charge of a team? Right. I can't really think of any, to be honest. And I'm saying that uh, I feel like the failures I had or more like my personal failures. Like I don't think in the past ten years or so was teams' failures, and I would say as Staggerflow, <clears throat> well, you are part of that too. I feel like one of the areas I didn't think the team did a good job. But again, it was also my fault as well. It took us way too long to build the design system. That's how it, I felt, and I I believe my mistake was um, I tried to make it really democratic because my idea was like if all the designers on the team got involved building this design system together then when we launch it you feel like a part of ownership right and i did not want just one or two designers do all, everything dictating how things look um but looking back we actually had a lot more arguments back and forth i feel like you know as the leader of the team i should just put my foot down it's like no more argument about this one this I'm making decisions then move on. And the fact that, again, keep in mind, my goal with back then was like, I want to have a nice team who are nice to each other, not tear each other's faces off of arguing kind of, versus kind of multi-thread something that maybe should have been single-threaded by one, you know, two people. Yeah, and in fact, <clears throat> that's what I learned. And again, I don't see that as a team failure. It was more my failure. You know, I feel like I was just not very decisive. You know, I let this drag on too long, and the end result at the time, at least draft one, wasn't as good as I thought. So I did learn that lesson why, when I was at TopTal, I, I felt the need to build a design system, but I didn't want to take the two years to do. And in yeah. fact, I told, I told the team, I said, we need a design system. Here, how are we going to do it? We're going to finish this in two months, tops, and then we'll have the, the office implement everything in one month. And I, I, I told the team, I'm going to pick two people. These are 
and why I explained it to him not because I think you guys are lesser designers than these two but I just want to move this along that's what we need and if these designers have disagreements I'll come and make the decision that's it move on to the next one and then we were able to build a design system really fast I wouldn't say it was perfect in the beginning but um, it just really sped, sped things up a lot and and then we took our time yeah, I mean, and back to the, your statement on vision it, it cleared up the vision probably immensely yeah. and it gave you a fixed point to work from yeah i think clear communication is important if i didn't explain all that to the team they just felt they made feel like i was just playing favors i was dictating and by explain to the whole team why we are doing it this way it really helped to move the project along um another thing i want to <clears throat> point out that one thing i've learned recently after i left Staggerflow, i think my mistake was I made my number one goal to make the team happy. <laughs> that was my mistake. Because I feel like, I mean, obviously, I still care about that. I want the team happy, but that should not be my number one goal. The fact that the team are happy, feeling fulfilled, should be the side effect of something else. It should not be the goal, um, <clears throat> right? For example, if I establish robust process, let the team believe in my, my mission, I pave a way for the team, you know, have a really awesome organizational relationship with the engineers, product, whatever, and teams are compensated well, then they're happy automatically, right? But if I just focus on making the people happy, I may resort to, I don't know, fake nicety, bribery, or nasty. To me, that's not good for a team, and that's not good for me. So that's one lesson I learned from Staggerflow. I feel like that was my mistake at the time and I didn't challenge my team that much think about the whole, the whole time you and I worked together Courtney when did I even ever challenge you I don't think I did right yeah. I mean no, I don't think it was it was always a situation of how are you feeling you know what's going on and yeah exactly I mean to me that's still important I still ask those things during my one-on-one but I <clears throat> you know my my leader, leadership style my, or management style is I don't like to put fire out I like to prevent fires from happening to begin with. And that's why I value, value these one-on-ones. I hope the team can open up to me. And in the in trust and respect, this takes time to build. Uh, but I, I realize I'm personally accountable for my whole department. You know, like <laughs> if something goes wrong, I can't just, oh, oops, that designer messed up. That's still, that's my responsibility too. Yeah. I, I think yeah. that's a that's a very important kind of leadership trait of just being able to own some of the, well, I don't want to say mistakes, but some of the kind of shortcomings of the team, because at the end of the day, the leader is responsible for growing that team. They're responsible for giving them the opportunities to learn and understand, right? And I, I've heard a fair share of stories where people would say, oh, like my manager would say that it was my fault or something like that in some big meeting and a big review instead of, Doing that privately or discussing this in more of a okay how can we help you be better instead of just shifting blame and that's that's fantastic to hear i don't think that's a good working environment if you're in a, absolutely in a not no leader is your leader if your leader is not accepting extreme ownership i mean there should be a res mutual respect happening right that's a good way to put it extreme ownership exactly this is where as a leader you're the one responsible for your team like you're responsible yeah. for the success when your team succeeds and you're responsible for a team doesn't. And I, I think that's also an interesting pivot to that is when your team succeeds, you should be very generous in giving the credit and saying, oh, it's actually like, you know, Courtney is the one that came up with this idea and he was fantastic at it versus saying, oh, this is me. It's all me. 
But when it comes to blame, it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like you have to pr protect. Right, absolutely. right. When, uh, absolutely. When I um, joined TopTop, the team was not in good shape, not because they weren't good designers. As I mentioned, there was burnout. There was a lot of blame towards design team. So the very first thing I decided to do it during my first week was I told everybody outside the design team, whether they were PMs, engineers, whatever, even VPs, I said, you don't ping, don't ever ping my designers directly on Slack if you have a complaint to ping me directly. And I, I just shield the team from all that uh, like negativity, I guess, because I want I wanted to stop the hemorrhaging right, right away. And then, I, then even th then I was able to rebuild relationships and that worked really well. Um, I've also learned when it comes to giving critiques and praises, uh, I forgot, I'm, I mean, I didn't come up with this myself. I read my book or video. It's like, don't ever criticize them as a person or praise them as a person, right? So you can say, oh, you're, you're a bad designer because you did this. You can criticize that thing they did, right? And conversely, you want to praise that thing they did. I mean, if I say, oh, wow, Courtney, you're a great designer because you did this, then wh where does Courtney go from there, right? You want to praise All that thing. All I'm getting out of this call is I'm amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I learned that you want to praise that thing they did so they know, wow, this thing is a good thing I did. Yeah, they could possibly even do better. But if you just make a generalization of them as a person, then to me, that's, I mean, it's really hard to do. I, to be honest, I still say, oh, you're a great designer sometimes. So, then so I realize. You're saying that the object of the criticism should be on, based on the work. Yeah, you, you, you criticize or praise the work, right? And to me, you know, if it's praised, then your design team still knows they have more room to grow. If you just say, oh, wow, you, you guys or girls are all amazing designers, then where do they go from there? No. And the positive side effect of that too is when you criticize somebody's work, they don't take it personally. Like it's not the fact that I'm bad, or it's not the fact that you know I did not think about it. It's just there could be a room for improvement, and I need to think of how to improve it. And that would, to some extent, even motivate the person to think through the problem differently instead of just kind of retreating yeah. into a shell. Yeah, and saying like, "Oh, I'm a failure. Never well, mind that." It creates that it fosters that culture of like leadership understands there's going to be failures and i can learn from them right because not every project that we work on in a workspace yeah. is going to be a big swing oh, 100%. Like, yeah it might be like it's a very it's treading new water and we got to just find out right like yeah. you're going to ship it and it's going to be a complete failure mm -hmm. and, and, and no matter what just giving criticism receiving it doesn't matter how constructive it is done it's just still not easy i think we're just humans oh. right um but what i found making it a lot easier was you know i i'm a big believer in radical candor as a book and um yes because I, in fact i saw some recent twitter debates about whether that works or not anyway personally it worked for me um but it requires a lot of relationship investment before that actually works because if I don't have a good personal relationship with somebody on my team, I don't mean either whether I like them or not. It's more like how comfortable, trusting we feel towards each other, how how respective we feel towards each other. If we, I don't have that, you know, if I give a negative feedback, even I do it super constructively, I still have to worry about oh, did I hurt that person's feeling? How how would they take it? 
and that's the best line of that we don't have that certain that level of trust yet we have not built that level of personal uh, social capital yet um, but uh, for example at top tall i i could give really harsh feedback and i would never had to worry about oh my god that person gonna quit next day because <laughs> they, they know i really care and trust about uh and trust them i did a lot of you know uh, nice things for them in the past so i don't have to worry about that it's kind of like you know <clears throat> if you if you yell at your brother or something, do you have to work? Do you ever worry about? Oh my God, is he gonna leave the house <laughs> tomorrow? No, right. So you have that type of trust, so you can give a lot more direct feedback. I, I think the the framework that Kim Scott outlined with the radical candor is absolutely fantastic because you're you're thinking through the fact that you need to solve a problem with your product, with your service. And the people that you work with are those people that solve the problem. And that's where you're essentially addressing. How can you solve the problem better? And I think that that's kind of a big um, dilemma that sometimes managers can face is like, well, like you said, you know, do I hurt this person's feelings or I do that? But at the end of the day, there needs to be that shared understanding of this is not about like, of course, like you don't need to be very uh, terse and harsh <laughs> unnecessarily. But at the end of the day, also hiding that and saying, no, you're doing great. Everything is fantastic. Just change some things. The person's not going to internalize the fact that that's actually not good, right? Like they need to change certain things. You can't just sugarcoat it and hope that it changes. Right. Yep. So I would be very sad if we ended this whole interview without talking about food. And so this leads me to kind of my, my book ending question here, which is, you know, what work habits have you found, Jen, that promote team spirit? Because I know for a fact, you and I, we had many dinners um, in New York City. You know, when we worked at Stack Overflow, that was like the, the focal point of basically team bonding. I mean, we all worked remote and we got together and we just went out and had great dinners. I mean, I remember people teasing me like, do you really work when you go to New York? Because you're always eating and you're posting photos about eating. But I think that was like a really key thing to getting to know my coworkers and getting to sit down with them and have to wait over, you know, hours to get to the subway and um, get into a restaurant. It's like you're forced, you're kind of like in this shared space to talk, communicate, learn about each other, right? That's one of them, right? Eating, eating is a big one. But like what other habits have you found that help promote that team spirit? eating <laughs> i'm trying to think hard uh well you know we work remotely at stack Overflow, and my top top team was 100 percent remote so i didn't have a lot of face-to-face -face interaction with the team except for during um <clears throat> the offsite team meetup time that's why i focus on food um but there are other things just just chit chat really in fact the last meetup i had a top call with my design team it was Amazing! It was in Lisbon, Portugal. I made it. I made a conscious effort to make make it mostly about social because to me that team bonding experience is more valuable than any whiteboarding sessions we would do in person. Because everything else, well, let's be honest, we can do literally do everything remotely. Um, so I did focus on just team socializing. It could be uh, eating dinner together. It could just be taking a walk on the streets of Lisbon, and it just small talks and. That was it. I mean, of course, like with Capital One, I'll I'll be moving to San Francisco soon. Hopefully, once the lockdown's over, I'll be working with my team in person. So I may come up with something new. Um, 
but as far as virtual working virtually, maybe sometimes virtual hangout is really cool. That just pure first purely social purpose. In fact, this week a coworker at Capital One <clears throat> is leaving and we had the going away virtual Zoom dance party. It was amazing. You know, one guy played the DJ, played blast a lot of nineties music. In fact the entire Zoom call, there was no talking. Whoever whenever people got on call, you can see their face. They look so confused at first. And then they just start dancing with the music and it was <laughs> awesome. Yeah, in fact, you know, it wasn't long as Zoom call, it was 30 minutes. <clears throat> I remember towards the end, um, you know, the DJ said, hey, last song. <laughs> and I actually felt, it really reminded me of my old clubbing days, you know, like 2 a.m., like 1.55, that you DJ said, oh, there's a lost track. And, and it was always like Daru's Sandstorm. <laughs> and, you know, as the song ends, you, you have this happy but almost empty feeling. You're like, oh, man, th this thing's ending. And everybody's kicked out, right? You can't, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay. And it was time to get street hot dogs. And that feeling, I actually felt it during this Zoom call at the end. I was like, wow, that's, I never felt that way before. Because Zoom to me were just always meetings, right? Yeah. Maybe that's something like I plan to do more with a team. How can you bottle up that energy that you felt and then turn it into something regular? Yeah, yeah. This is fantastic. I absolutely love the idea of just wrapping everything up with the root stand sandstorm. <laughs> yeah. Can you please play it? Like add it in here at the end as we fade fade off. I know. Yeah. <laughs> the best track ever. Like if you were thinking EDM, that's the song. You, you should end all your podcasts <clears throat> with the root sandstorm, but open them with the golf golf thing. Yeah, like from Street Fighter golf thing. That goes with everything, right? <laughs> So Jen, where can people find you out on the internet? Where do you hang out um, if they want to learn more or talk to you? Uh, Twitter is probably the best place. Initial JZY on Twitter. Uh, same my initial on Instagram as well, but I keep Instagram private just for close friends and family coworkers. I would say uh, JZY's um, Twitter. And recently, somebody reminded me, <laughs> I used to have a blog. Um, <laughs> a long time ago, I don't really advertise it, but I figured if people Google, if their Google food is good enough, they'll find it. Yeah, you you have a couple of really good posts on there, so even still today. So you were saying Jay Z Y, and I the first time I'm just like, wait, Jay Z, you're you're Jay Z. <laughs> In fact, on that uh, virtual Zoom dance party, uh, it was mostly '90s rap music, and we started like people start requesting Snoop Dogg and we couldn't play a lot of Snoop Dogg because our DJ couldn't find clean versions because people had little kids dancing with them too. So we had to play the censored version. But I was telling my coworkers what my high school nickname was because somebody mentioned Snoop Dogg. It was Gin and Juice from wow. high school. And my college nickname was Jay-Z. So I just can't escape rapper nicknames, which I'm totally well, fine. Yeah. Everybody thought you were in the Smashing Pumpkins too, right? Oh yeah, and that too. That's just from my look. And yeah, and, and if people search for you, they probably think you were in Silicon Valley. Yes, that too. <laughs> yes. Does it cause any confusion when you tell people to like Google your name and they find like, wait, are you the guy from Silicon Valley? Um, <clears throat> probably in recent years because the 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 James Oyong guy, he's like he basically took over my Google SEO juice. Like every time you search my name, his face comes up. You know, and then. Yeah, people like uh, point that out to me. I'll say, yes, I, I too eat the fish. 
Yeah, man, you're buried now. I can't. You're not at the top anymore. Sorry. So we can wrap this up with just like, what's your favorite food place? We'll go through the circle. That's such a hard question. Uh, I think Ipudo Ramen in New York. The food is definitely my most favorite ramen, but I picked that place because I've had so many good memories during my Stack Overflow days. I took Courtney there, Josh, and all the other Stack Overflow people from New York. So I feel like I had the most meals there, Ipudo, New York. I still feel like their Tonkatsu Ramen is the best. I, I'm putting that on my to-do list. Courtney, what about yourself? There's, I think, I believe there's a speakeasy attached to that that shop, and it's called Angel Share, and it has amazing some amazing cocktails. But um, it's not my my favorite place to eat. But I did want to mention that because it was it's, awesome. That's, that's instead of Village Yakucho, you're thinking about a different place. Okay. Yeah, that, but anyways, that's, that's a yakitori place. Yeah, Angel Share is amazing. Yeah. Um, there's a place, so I got to pick some place that I can actually get to because I live in the middle of nowhere in Indiana. So it has to be some place I can actually go eat. Um, there's a place called Bridges, and it's in Greencastle, Indiana, which is a short drive. It's about 30 minutes south of me. Um, they have some. They have an amazing pizza oven there. It's actually been imported from Greece. Um, it's a very kind of upscale restaurant, but they have awesome. They have an awesome pizza that has a jam on it. Actually, it's like a. Uh, really rich grape jam jelly. It's really good. That's awesome. <clears throat> yeah, for me, it'd be uh, Maritama Ramen. Uh, I, I'll echo Jin's comments that ramen is my probably favorite food. And there's one in West End in Vancouver yeah. that it's fantastic. It I, was has a say, I went there. It's amazing. The, the, there's always a line. Like, no matter what, like, it's rain or shine, there's always people standing outside. <clears throat> but West End, you're talking about, like, that, that one street that has all the ramen, ramen places. Yes. Right? Like yep. Yep. Japan town. Yeah. Yep. We went there before. It's amazing. It's fantastic. Well, uh, thanks so much, Jin, for being here. This is this is great. We got uh, more than an hour of good stuff. Yep. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's good to um, see you in person virtually for the first time, Ben. Yeah, yeah, very much mutual. And hopefully this is not the last episode we're talking because I feel like there's a list of topics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have a part two after you've been at Capital One for a while and you can okay. absolutely discuss what you've learned there. So. Great. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. See you guys. Let's see. Okay. Stop and record.